welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 41 and um, a lot to discuss this week. Let me do my usual spiel, uh, my carnival barking for Counterpunch, as it were. Um, the magazine, get a subscription. Look, I keep saying it. I keep harping on it. I'm going to tell you something. It feels really good every every time I get an email from somebody saying, you know what? I heard you say get a subscription to Counterpunch Magazine, you know, 35 times or more. I've been listening to the show for a while, and I finally decided to do it. I got my issues in the mail, and I'm so happy I did it. I mean, I've had a number of emails along those lines, and it feels really good for me because on the one hand, I know that I'm – at least doing my part to help try to drive people to support Counterpunch in a financial way, but also um, keeping a space open for print media, which I think is also very, very important. I mean, there's so, so many print publications just disappearing, dropping like flies every day. I'm very happy that Counterpunch still exists in a print form, and I'm very happy that people are using that as a way of supporting the project. Um, also, of course, you can donate to Counterpunch on the website uh, using PayPal, all the usual all the usual features. And, of course, I always humbly request that people give us positive reviews for this show on iTunes, help to drive us up those recommendation charts, give us those five star reviews if you like it uh, if you like the show if you don't like the show well I, I guess don't give us a review because that would not be nice but if you, whatever I don't know why you'd even be listening to me at that point um, the question that I have that I want to pose to uh, supporters of this show and supporters of Counterpunch and this is just food for thought what do you think would be the implication of taking, say, $5 a month or $10 a month, which is really the cost of a couple of cups of coffee at Starbucks, and giving that to truly independent media? I mean, in my view, that's one of the ways that we really fight back against this system because the controlled corporate media and the uh, foundation-funded pseudo-alternative media, they have in many ways a monopoly on information. It's our responsibility to break that monopoly. Supporting Counterpunch, supporting your favorite independent projects, including my website, stopimperialism.org and various others that I, of course, could recommend. That is one way to do it. I urge people to just keep that in mind. Anyway, that being said, let me turn to my guest this week. Um, every once in a while, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that a guest is coming on the program who I know well, who I consider a friend and a comrade, and I'm pleased to be able to say that this week I have Emmanuel Ness on the show. Uh, Emmanuel is a friend of mine, but most importantly, he is a professor of political science at the City University of New York at CUNY. He is the author of a number of books, uh, the editor of the recently released um, Palgrave Encyclopedia of Imperialism and Anti- imperialism to which yours truly was a contributor and also the new book from uh, uh, from Manny from Emmanuel Ness Southern Insurgency The Coming of the Global Working Class very important book Manny Emmanuel Ness thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio uh, it's a pleasure Eric always your uh, great uh, journalist and uh, I think everybody should recognize uh your important contribution to understanding imperialism and uh, identifying means to struggle against it. Hey, thank so, you. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's very, very kind of you. So, Manny, look, we have so much to cover, and um, it's it's interesting um, because your book, Southern Insurgency, the again, Southern Insurgency, the coming of the global working class. This is from uh, Pluto Press. I highly recommend the book. Um, this, I think, is a really critical contribution to the left, a critical contribution to the international perspective on the left. So let's start there, if we could. Tell us a little bit about Southern Insurgency. What is the thesis of this book? Um, you know, what, what, sort of, what, what sort of argument are you putting forward, and why is this critical for our discourse on the left? Uh, well, I think it's a very uh, important uh, book, if I do say so myself, um, because it demonstrates uh, the way industrial struggle is shifting. Um, you know, 30 years ago till today, uh, many leftists as well as right-wing scholars, liberals and 
uh, conservatives uh, share a view about the industrial working class as being a conservatizing force or a reactionary force uh, that uh, does not contribute to social transformation in any way. And in fact, um, this was pushed by uh, identity and postmodern scholars uh, to diminish the role of workers in the West. And indeed, uh, you know, over the last 30 years, we've seen the decline of industrial workers in North America, Western Europe, and other parts of uh, the uh, developed world. Um, this uh, position was put forward by uh, many who said, uh, in fact, uh, that uh, we could almost achieve uh, socialism in the West, um, you know, to quote from the German ideology uh, about how communist society can be achieved where, uh, you know, the infamous quote, and I'm paraphrasing, hunting in the morning, fishing in the afternoon, uh, raising cattle in the evening, and criticizing discourse uh, intellect in the evening. Uh, and I think that uh, we uh, here in the West have to recognize that, um, you know, we, we have, uh, uh, the left has continued to struggle against deindustrialization, but I would argue by and large that struggle is over because uh, most of the, uh, if not all, I mean 90% of industrial activity takes place in the global south. Uh, or in the third world. So the West needs to look further if it wants to understand how workers uh, engage in organizing uh, in these uh, developing countries. And it has ignored it for all too long. That's why I think it's extremely important and also somewhat hard, because many of us in the West would like to say, yeah, we're, we're part of the industrial working class. Yes, many of us are in the working class. Many of us live precarious lives. But most of us, are not part of the industrial working class. And at the same time, across the global south, we're finding that peasant communities are forced off the land and are forced to work in harsh and impoverished conditions in urban regions across Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, you know, simply across the third world. Uh, inevitably, new methods of combating this uh, will take place. As we understand, you know, from our own experiences, anywhere the class struggle will take place and that uh, workers uh, in Africa and Asia and Latin America are no different than workers in the global north, except they're much more highly exploited. And that's one of the main points of the book, that the level of exploitation is incredibly high uh, and we are the beneficiaries of that exploitation. You know, some people may have lost jobs or have declining income standards in the West, but by comparison, you know, in, the, in, the, in Africa, Asia, Latin America, where people don't have clean water and where you have epidemics of malaria and cholera taking place on a regular basis, in some of these same communities, uh, there's just really no comparison whatsoever. And so Southern Insurgency tries to examine uh, these conditions uh, in three places, uh, but it really can be expanded um, to China, India, and South Africa. And what I'm trying to do is uh, ex examine the broader historical forces. And, and in this case, following uh, you know, much of your work, uh, the important role of imperialism, the decline of trade unions in the global south, which are in fact models of the trade unions that the United States would like to oppose, as well as Western European countries through the international trade union confederations. And uh, what I tried to do is reveal how these struggles of uh, insurgent movements are engaging uh, militantly in factories and key installations that um, are essential for the commodity production and our lifestyles in the West. Yeah, exactly right. And one of the things that is particularly striking about the argument that you put forward, and it, it you know, I mean, it seems like it would be intuitive, but I think that a lot of times, particularly on the left, there is a tendency to completely miss what is a seemingly obvious point and something that you bring out repeatedly as sort of an underlying theme of this book, namely that uh, basically the industrial working class has not 
disappeared, quote unquote, but that it has been relocated. And it's important for the left, especially in the global north and the first world, uh, where we have seen this sort of deindustrialization process uh, accelerated by neoliberalism, of course. But for those of us who are w- working here and struggling here to understand the importance of solidarity on the one hand, but also of uh, the contradictions that exist between our situation and that of the new global working class that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the, on the head. In, in this way, um, I have uh, tried to uh, demonstrate that, uh, and it's actually you actually go to the capitalist literature in this in this case. The data that's provided by the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and you'll find that uh, 85 to 90 percent of the uh, world is in the South, as I said, and that, in fact, there are over 3 million workers in the world, uh, and 3 million workers in the global South. Um, and, you know, for instance, um, the fallacy that um, uh, Donald Trump has put forward in the election that Americans are being exploited by China is just simply ridiculous because, in fact, we're the primary beneficiaries of the low cost of, you know, as well known, the Apple phone, which uh, uh, the cost, I think, is somewhere between $7 and $10 now. uh, And that is the cost that is charged uh, the uh, vendors like Apple, uh, but not what is paid workers. So those workers in places like China and other regions of the world, but in this case, especially China and parts of Korea, uh, are, are, in fact, slave labor wages. And um, as one remembers in 2010, the Foxconn uh, suicides that took place in um, uh, companies that were controlled by uh, the United States uh, in China uh, was just uh, a, a, an example of this. But since then, in China, many of the working class have mobilized because the Chinese government does not want to see this kind of super exploitation take place as the country develops into a modern industrial power. You know, what's interesting, Manny, that, that you that you bring up in that example just kind of strikes me as you were speaking here is – Yes, of course, we have this sort of almost slave labor. I mean, it's not slave labor. We don't want to we don't want to, you know, denigrate what slavery really is, but it's almost a form of slave labor that takes place in some of these factories and in places like China and elsewhere in assembling and manufacturing these phones, but we we can't separate that from the slave labor that is used in Africa to mine the rare earth minerals like coltan and lithium and these other things that are that the raw materials that are then shipped to these factories where these things are assembled which are then shipped to the United States and to the West for consumption and this is one of the striking points about your book or, or the arguments that you really put forward here is trying to make both on an intellectual and on a practical uh, political level the connection between that exploited working class in Africa that exploited working class in China and the the consumer base that drives all of this uh, in terms of global capitalism in the West. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, for instance, your example about Africa and the uh, Democratic Republic of, of uh, the Congo is prescient because in, in the case of uh, Coltan, uh, without it, we could not have cell phones in the same way as we do today. Uh, and many of the processors would not work, and that is, in fact, uh, produced by workers who are the, amongst the most highly exploited, who are working uh, under you know the barrel of a gun, who are not paid uh, money, and in fact, uh, those resources are raided illegally by the West, uh, uh, by uh, smugglers and so forth. Uh, and, and in fact, destabilization in the DRC is part of the process of mining uh, coltan. And, and, and this is uh, one, you know, one of the most uh, extreme examples of exploitation where workers uh, have absolutely no rights. They hardly get paid at all. And um, uh, more work is being done on it. And I, I'm identifying uh, many scholars who have uh, engaged in this research in, when in my journeys to, to Africa. So, yes, absolutely. The connection with respect to China, uh, I'd like to make the case that China has, in fact, changed in some ways over the last 
at least since 2008, uh, as uh, workers in the urban areas become legalized and uh, uh, their wages have gone up significantly, uh, where, uh, in, in fact, uh, workers are going on strike and do have certain rights to engage in concerted and collective activity, even though there's a single union, the uh, All-China Federation of Trade Unions. Um, and I think that's a positive development, that workers are creating their autonomous independent unions within China. Uh, and I have to say this very clearly, without the help of the West, without the help of NGOs and so forth, uh, when I went to the Pearl River Delta, which produces one quarter of China's production capacity, uh, and much of the materials that uh, we use every day, um, I found that workers were able to, for instance, choose which hospital they want to go to, and if they didn't like the opinion, be a, they were able to go to a second hospital if they felt uh, fell ill and so forth. And I also found that uh, workers um, were um, engaged in strikes, um, and you know these strikes are really against multinational corporations in some uh, profound ways. You know, think of China, which uh, doesn't really have any brand names. Uh, you know, we don't have Apple. We, uh, they don't have Apple. They don't have Microsoft. They don't have uh, the equivalent brand names in the Chinese uh, lexicon, even to the point, you know, we have Toyotas and we have uh, uh, Kias and um, brands from Korea and uh, and Japan, but not, nothing really from uh, China. But we are really the beneficiaries of that uh, uh, exploitation. And, uh, you know, certainly the question would, uh, we have to raise is that um, while American consumerism is essential, uh, the, the key uh, exploiters are the corporations uh, through uh, uh, foreign direct investment and so forth. Uh, they're able to extract uh, super profits through these countries. And in China, people are just not having it anymore and um, they are increasingly engaging in uh, struggles, uh, which I would say are international struggles against uh, corporations in the West, against Wall Street, against the city of London, to fight for uh, decent pay and so forth. Absolutely. And it's an interesting point. And one of the other things that I think is really important as far as contributions that your book makes, again, uh, Southern Insurgency, The Coming of the Global Working Class, um, a very important book. And, and, and what I want to highlight here, and this is an argument that you make or something that you bring out repeatedly, the fact of the matter is that in the global north, in the West, the first world, whatever you want to call it, traditionally, the scholarship uh, on the left, whether they're you know Marxists and, and and what have you, however they identify, that oftentimes the scholarship, when talking about labor, is really only talking about first world labor, and that there is an ethnocentric, a a, a white supremacist sort of outlook in, in embedded in uh, that sort of um, analysis, and that's another thing that you're really pushing back against is this this notion that no, in fact. When we're talking about labor and when we're talking about labor struggles and the working class, we have to see it as a global struggle that is predominantly non-white and predominantly existing in the global south. Precisely, Eric. That's uh, a key point that uh, is embedded in this uh, general narrative. Uh, you know, Andre Gortz, who's uh, seen as a great scholar, and, and many post other postmodernists would like to put forward uh, these uh, cases about how workers in the West um, uh, are, are really the only ones that exist and that technology will take care of all of our problems. Well, in fact, uh, uh, there, there are other elements, especially the large reserve army of labor, which I would call primarily people of color, in the global South and not in the West. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that workers in the West are not exploited, they're exploited in different ways through surplus value and so forth uh, and through uh, the uh, form of exchange that exists in our society. We do have gentrification and so forth. But the degree of exploitation, there's just absolutely no comparison. And that um, what is particularly disturbing is that we have uh, you know, anti-communist and frequently corrupt trade unions in the West uh, uh, that uh, are 
in many instances, uh, imposing their diktat on the kinds of unions that workers in the global south can form. And this has happened all over India and other parts of the world. Uh, we all know about the American uh, uh, NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, and its uh, effort to impose its uh, kind of trade unionism, uh, not just in the West, but mainly now in uh, Africa and, and uh, Asia and Latin America. And uh, in, in that context, uh, uh, they see it as strengthening democracy. I actually see it as a way to uh, put down uh, workers uh, in the global south. And um, uh, so in this case, uh, just to follow your point, that you know, we can identify institutionally and organizationally uh, trade unions uh, through the International Trade Union Confederation, for instance, who are saying, you know, what kind of unions people should have and what kind of, kinds of organizations workers should engage in uh, when uh, there is a real great desire amongst these workers to transform their societies into uh, drivers of their own economies and developing their own um, uh, societies in a much more egalitarian fashion. Absolutely. And I know that you're already working on, uh, a, I don't know if it's, formally a follow-up to the book, but it's basically an extension of the same kind of research. Now, for this book, you uh, you traveled to the Pearl River Delta of China, you went to India, and you went to South Africa. Now, um, t you could tell us a little bit about what you experienced in these different places, but what I'm also particularly interested in is where are you going next, and do you expect to find the same sets of obstacles, the same sets of problems, the same kinds of struggles, or do you think that some of the new places you're going to are in some ways vastly different? Well, I've, I've traveled to these the places that you just mentioned, India, South Africa, and China, several times because uh, it's very important to have a temporal analysis of how workers' struggles change. And one uh, demonstrative uh, difference has taken place within the last four or five years. As workers have engaged in class struggle on the, in the job, in the shop floors, places like China, India, as well as especially South Africa, uh, you're finding that investment... Uh, uh, and, and uh, has declined or has been redirected in a way to, mar uh, you know, to, to uh, uh, I would say, marginalize the workers and to uh, uh, overturn the gains that have been uh, advanced uh, through these workers. Because mainly, uh, and the point I wanted to make earlier, you know, about China and so forth, much of the um, corporate uh, uh, profits are you know, repatriated by the West, uh, by financial capital in, in New York, uh, London, Tokyo, etc. Uh, the major uh, uh, beneficiaries of, of this are Westerners. Um, so just getting to where I'm going to go again is I'll likely go to these places again, along with uh, regional areas uh, in South Asia and Southeast Asia. So I will be going back to India again. I actually just returned from a trip there where I found company unions being formed by management and so forth in some instances. Um, and uh, I think it's essential to go to places like Vietnam and uh, Indonesia and other parts of Southeast Asia where a lot of the production uh, will be shifted uh, from uh, China to... Uh, and uh, that's, you know, we can talk about the TPP as a, a major element and driver of that process in, in that sense that China is not included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and as a consequence, um, uh, a lot of the production workers will be and are already uh, shifted in key industries such as electronics and clothing and so forth to uh, even poorer countries where wages are much lower. So, you know, ra you know in China, uh, the production of garments has declined dramatically, in including very high uh, expenses garments, uh, to uh, even cheaper places such as uh, Myanmar, Burma, uh, especially Bangladesh, uh, Indonesia, and so forth. You know, people should take a look at their clothing and say, have China on their label, it means that they've actually got a better pro quality product in some ways, because, the, or at least the workers less exploited uh, than if they were to uh, purchase a good goods from, let's say, Indonesia, where workers are highly exploited and where wages are far lower. 
So that's one thing I would do. And but I think it's very important to go back to, and I continue to, uh, Africa a, a, and India on a regular basis, which I have done over the years. And I'm seeing the, the rise of fascism, for instance, in India uh, to have a, a highly uh, uh, corrosive effect on the organization of trade unions. And um, I, I really don't, you know, I'm not very positive about uh, and optimistic about India's uh, long-term prospects under the current regimes that have been in power since 1947, because um, both Congress and the now uh, fascist-dominated BJP have supported the repression of workers in a, a fundamental way. Um, and that's why it's extremely important to go to uh, and to, to conduct research in, in India. At the same time, in some liberated zones of China, you do find... Um, in, in the Northeast, for instance, uh, you do find uh, workers um, who are many, in many instances indigenous, uh, Adivasi workers, uh, who have created cooperatives that are actually uh, doing a service, I'd say probably the most important cooperatives in the world, you know, hospitals, schools, and so forth, that are run uh, by communities themselves uh, against the state. So, for instance, in India, uh, the Indian government has uh, declared that uh, the uh, workers or indigenous insurgency, some people call it the Maoist insurgency, is the major threat to the government. Yet at the same time, these, these people are fighting against you know, the uh, erosion of their environment, uh, cutting down, clear cutting down of forests, um, uh, mining uh, of mountain, mountaintop mining, and so forth, which uh, were part of their cultures uh, and they want to maintain them. Um, and uh, at the same time, they're also trying to develop certain kinds of uh, uh, more communal kinds of uh, control. But in, in other parts of India, we're talking about actually the country that will be the largest in, in the world within the next three years, population-wise. Uh, when you go to India, you're not just going to India, you're going to a place in India. So it's essential to go back over and over again and uh, so that, that's the point I would make, and that we will find these struggles to, that w w will continue. Can continue, uh, as as you uh, are aware, of the Make in India movement uh, that has been uh, proffered by uh, uh, Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of the BJP. There uh, is really a way to uh, cut down on any kind of worker rights in uh, in India. They've tried to uh, erode the trade union law by uh, making it much more difficult for workers to engage in uh, union-concerted activity. So uh, when we uh, think about the investments that we're, United States uh, foreign direct investments and some of the goods that we get from India and other countries, we should recognize that there is a high degree and higher degree uh, of exploitation now than ever. But that also goes for other countries around the world, with a peculiar exception perhaps in China. Uh, and I say peculiar because in China, uh, workers do seem to have a capacity to engage in strike activity uh, and to, in some cases, embarrass the uh, All-China Federation of Trade Unions into uh, acceding to their demands, uh, and that there isn't the level of authoritarianism in China as there is certainly in India and now increasingly in South Africa, where the mine workers have uh, been um, engaged in strike activity, but uh, the, the achievements of the mine workers have been, you know, stunning. I would say in the last several years. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Let's let's just take a break, and on the other side of the break, we'll pick up from that point and uh, a couple of other key questions that I think are touched on in the book, but I, I want to expand on. So uh, anyway, stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with Emmanuel Ness. We're chatting uh, about his book, Southern Insurgency, The Coming of the Global Working Class. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
seas we must fight for From the cities and the farmlands to trenches full of mud Wars who has been the bosses wiser Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Emmanuel Ness about this very important book, um, Southern Insurgency. And Manny, I want to pick up exactly where we left off before the break, because you were mentioning some of these very important developments in places like South Africa and in India. But I also want to focus, I, I don't want this to be solely, you know, an examination of the tragic plight of workers, because on the while you do expose a lot of that, you also point out some very constructive and I think quite um, uh, heartening developments and mobilizations that we're seeing. You mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation about some of the cooperatives that have developed. I also see a sort of a uh, an overlap or a, a union almost of, yeah, union's the wrong word in this context, but sort of a joining together in some ways of forces of rural peasantry with industrial working class and somehow in in places like India, for instance, the line between those two is increasingly, I think, blurring, and some of the tactics that are being used are quite similar, if not identical. So talk a little bit about some of these positive developments that we're seeing, and do you think there is this sort of uh, increased closeness between uh, peasant movements, landless peasant movements, pushing against land grabbing, pushing against environmental destruction, and all of the rest of that, with industrial working? class movements? I, I think absolutely. Uh, if I can start with South Africa, um, the uh, mining uh, workers in South Africa are almost exclusively peasants uh, initially, and they uh, work in the mines for uh, you know eight or nine months, and then they go back to their, uh, their homelands. Things have not really changed that much in, in this way. Uh, from the period of apartheid, where people went back to their uh, home regions, and um, uh, if one were to travel to uh, some of the mining uh, installations, which are gigantic factory towns uh, in South Africa, producing platinum, especially as well as other ores such as manganese, um, you'll find that almost all the workers come from rural areas and are peasants and have uh, their families back home that they need to take care of. And yet, so they're in this case, they're paying for two uh, places to stay at the same time. Um, and um, uh, in South Africa, there has been a growing movement against the uh, uh, mining of um, the uh, region. As many of your listeners in Counterpunch, uh, who are extremely intelligent, know, uh, South Africa and Southern Africa in general is the most uh, mineral-rich part of the world. Uh, by far. Uh, I mean, the uh, belt uh, from Zimbabwe into South Africa is essential uh, to the production of so many different uh, products in the West. So, for instance, we could not have automobiles in the West without South Africa and uh, Zimbabwe, and, but especially South African platinum, which produces 90% of catalytic converters. Um, but uh, in, in, with respect to peasants, uh, the, the, the movements that have congealed in, in South Africa 
uh, have largely been uh, amongst uh, workers uh, who work underground uh, and then go home to the mines. And uh, they are very much concerned with the, the well-being in their locations where they exist, uh, yet the state has largely, uh, in many cases, ignored those regions. And I, I do believe that there has been the emergence of new movements in South Africa that uh, are trying to uh, their best to uh, increase the uh, wage levels uh, and uh, have succeeded uh, in doing so. And we, I hope that only continues to advance itself. Now, with, with respect to India, you know, the, the, the problem is that in India, uh, the population is so large that there really isn't much uh, land left for peasants. You know, people sometimes forget that urbanization has grown dramatically uh, to the point where the vast majority, well, more than 50% of the population of the world, um, as Mike Davis points out in 2003, uh, is now in urban areas. Uh, and that population is going is to grow probably to 6, million, 6 billion or 7 billion. But that still leaves 3 billion or 4 billion in the rural areas. And uh, that means that the rural areas are also overpopulated. And um, uh, this is a very serious pro problem in places like uh, India, uh, where uh, you, you continue to have caste systems in place and where you continue to have the dowry and people just no longer can afford to live in the rural areas. Yet at the same time, uh, as in throughout the world, Mexico, et cetera, uh, one of the major uh, forms of income generation in the rural areas uh, are industrial workers in the urban areas. Uh, therefore, for instance, in many of the uh, e new enterprise zones, uh, the economic processing zones, um, uh, the workers send money home back home to their uh, families because people sim simply cannot exist without it. Uh, with respect to the uh, more rural regions of India where the population density is not as great in the east and northeast uh, regions, uh, there have been um, major confrontations uh, between uh, the state and the Indian Army, which uh, the United States, um, I understand, is about to uh, have an agreement with uh, to uh, increase its uh, funding for uh, buying U.S. arms, the Indian Army, they're fighting their own people. In this case, they're fighting Adivasis, uh, who are referred to, and this is their re reference, scheduled tribes, uh, but they are an indigenous people of some 100 million, and they are fighting uh, for their, their land, and they're fighting for their lifestyles, and they're fighting for the right to live in a clean environment, uh, where services are available, where water is available, where the mountains are not removed, where mining does not destroy the ecosystem, um, uh, where um, urban areas uh, are, are, do not despoil uh, what are really bucolic uh, remain, you know, most, some of the most bucolic, bucolic areas of uh, the planet. Uh, you know, when people talk about pollution and global warming, they, they need to look at uh, India. And I actually would like to add this point. India especially, which is the most polluted country in the world, uh, Delhi is the most polluted city now, even with uh, their efforts to uh, try to uh, reduce that pollution. Uh, but, you know, those products that we uh, enjoy here in this country are the uh, consequence of production in the global south. So when we say we want uh, to reduce global warming, which I think is very important. Uh, we have to must remember one, uh, two major things. First of all, that global warming uh, comes at the expense of uh, workers. Uh, I mean, especially in the global south, because uh, of these industrial zones being uh, placed in areas where which are extremely dangerous, like Chennai, which is one of the major industrial cities, formerly Madras, in India, uh, where whole entire rural regions have been taken over by economic processing zones for uh, the production of automobiles, such as uh, the Ford uh, uh, Corporation, the Ford Company, and uh, Hyundai and others uh, that have built uh, gigantic facilities. Once people are uh, finished working, there's really no place else to go. Uh, and so, in, in effect, the uh, expansion of the urban area into the rural regions through over uh, the, the growth of capital, the in creation of a reserve army of labor, has brought about and engendered 
uh, high levels of pollution, uh, inability really to breathe for most people, uh, flooding uh, to levels that are just uh, unimaginable because Chennai Madras is right on the um, Bay of Bengal, uh, the Indian Ocean, uh, and uh, you know just general uh, health issues that are of critical nature. So uh, the, the standards of living may uh, increase in dollar terms, but really the lifestyles and quality of life have declined dramatically over the last 30, 40 years of neoliberalism that's been supported by imperialism. And in fact, I think the American efforts uh, to uh, shift its focus to Southeast Asia's reflection of the gigantic reserve army of labor more than even the minerals. Um, uh, th this uh, whole question about peasant movements, I think, is very important. Uh, and uh, uh, there is a new study coming out uh, that is part of uh, the series uh, that I'm editing called Wildcat uh, through Pluto Press that will uh, study uh, these indigenous people and their efforts to create uh, worker, worker communities that are sustainable in their areas, and in fact a form of, if I may say the term, communism. Very good, and you very much may say that term. Um, now, there's another, there's another issue that I think is, is equally important here, and that is the growth of alternative uh, multilateral institutions globally, which um, I think have, have risen not to challenge global capitalism, because they're very much capitalist and they're very much a part of global capitalism, but to challenge Western hegemony within the context of global capitalism. I think obviously... Obviously, probably the most prominent of those being the BRICS, um, Brazil, yeah. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, this sort of grouping, which is not exactly uh, an alliance, actually not even close to really an alliance, but rather a sort of a grouping of uh, what was at one point called the emerging economies, although increasingly they seem to be uh, in decline. Now, the reason yeah. I, the reason I bring this up, though, is because this question of creating an a an alternative to western hegemonic capital one that is by no means socialist one that is by no means an alternative to capitalism but it is an alternative uh to western dominated capital this i think has sent some shock waves through the ruling classes of the west uh and i think that we have seen uh and, and by the way not just bricks of course we've seen in latin america as well uh regionally speaking an increase um, a coherent alliance that is in many ways or has, has at least attempted in many ways to break away from Western hegemonic capital. Now we see a pushback against these forces by the West, by capital, uh, in order to, if not completely destroy them, then at the very least mute their development to the extent that's possible. And I mean, I've been writing about it and speaking about this issue, a uh, series of articles, Bricks Under Attack, and talking a lot about this. Now, I want to just get this sort of point from you, since you've been to a lot of these places um, in South oh, Africa. All, all of them, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. All, so, I've been to the bricks. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so in South Africa right now, we see a protest movement, one that uh, comes from very legitimate grievances, but one that is in various degrees being supported by British and U.S. capitalist interests for the purposes of, in my view, uh, destabilizing a government that it has increasingly looked to China for investment. Now, an ANC government that has in many ways, of course, betrayed the Freedom Charter, that has moved away from, you know, really nationalizing the industries and doing all the things that the ANC one, at one time promised to do and was built upon, but a government that is increasingly uh, independent of the West to varying degrees, and that's, of course, debatable, but I think that's why we're seeing uh, such a push against the ANC government. Similarly, we see something uh, brewing in India right now where the United States is trying to, and you were alluding to this earlier, 
trying to implement a series of military cooperation agreements which will, in, in effect, make India a military ally of the United States. And we know it's obvious why they would be doing that, to play on this constant uh, decades-old conflict between India and China, these two massive powers in Asia, both of them members of BRICS in various ways, having certain interests aligning, using India as a wedge against the BRICS broadly. So let's talk a little bit about these issues, if you could. Now, do you see Western capital mobilizing its forces to try to tamp down any attempt to create an alternative? Uh, I, I think without question, I think that that, that, start, that has been a continuous process. I mean, ever since the... Uh tripartite uh, alliance took power in South Africa in 1994, um, the West insisted that uh, the ANC, South African Communist Party, and COSATU, the Labor Federation, uh, agree to uh, the non-redistribution of land. So in South Africa, there's uh, laws that prevent the redistribution of land to uh, the uh, vast majority of the population you know so there may be around four million white people five million white people but we have about 50 or 60 million black south africans who have uh, the vast majority about 50 or 60 and then sounds 500,000 have not benefited at all from it in fact their lives have become much more uh, difficult um, and so you know thinking about this some more uh, my view is that uh, you know it would be very important for the ANC to take a different road that is independent of the West, and they have to be quite wary of any uh, Western interference. They are already, as you pointed out uh, very well, uh, being interfered with by global capital, the multinational mining companies from uh, the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, etc., control, uh, as well as uh, the, these uh, places uh, like Panama and Sulphur, etc., they control these uh, mines uh, in effect, um, and they're in fact the ultimate employers. And so, you know, the sentiment against the government that has grown it, it should be directed, um, uh, you know, obviously the government should not be working in alliance with multinational corporations, but that's precisely what they were doing, and I think that's uh, a danger that the West Especially uh, the capital, obviously the capitalist West, and that's all everybody uh, should. Uh, these countries should recognize who they're dealing with. That uh, they're dealing with really the devil, uh, and when you're dealing with um, uh, a Western capitalist-dominated uh, uh, world, uh, every single advantage will be uh, so, uh, so therefore if there's an agreement it should not necessarily or ever, never be seen as a agreement to um, uh, make things well for workers uh, the vast majority of workers in the global south that workers anywhere here in the United States but really a ceasefire for maybe 10 seconds because in fact that agreement allowed for the continuation of the uh, imperialist ownership of uh, the mines in South Africa, as well as the ruling class's ownership of those mines, but it hasn't changed a thing. So, in fact, um, South Africa really should take hold of its principles, but they also have to be wary of foreign meddling. So, therefore, you know, one must be aware that um, uh, the United States would much rather see an even more pliable government. Um, and, and so, uh, while we, you know, we, we sometimes wonder about why uh, certain members of uh, governments uh, make mistakes that uh, do not really help their, or parts of, not just mistakes, but are parts of uh, institutions that do not benefit their interests of the vast majority of people, uh, that the alternative could be even worse. Uh, in this case, in South Africa, the Democratic Alliance, which is a, a U.S. Uh, well, I would say South African uh, force that's primarily made out of, up of white South Africans uh, could fill the breach if uh, the uh, ANC were overthrown, which uh, is a very important point to recognize uh, that there really hasn't yet developed a alternative to the ANC. One might like to see the ANC reform itself or transform itself into a revolutionary force, 
which uh, it should have been from the very beginning. But um, that's a very serious concern that uh, we, you know, the question of imperialism and destabilization, which could make conditions even further um, uh, difficult for uh, South African uh, workers, the poor and peasants. Uh, with respect to India, you know, your point is, you know, certainly correct as well. Uh, there is uh, a growing danger uh, of uh, U.S. Uh, interference in India, which uh, I think is probably motivated by their uh, concern that China is becoming too strong. And, um, you know, in some regions of India, which uh, was drawn up by uh, the uh, the British uh, uh when they uh, divided India and China, etc., the lines of demarcation were, did not really reflect popular uh, interests. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, there, there, there are uh, territories, uh, uh, large swaths of land uh, in the northeast of uh, India, as well as the northwest, uh, that uh, are under contestation. Uh, and uh, one uh, point which could be made is that um, Today in India, there the major upheavals that are taking place at the university campuses and with respect to uh, the opposition to caste-dominated uh, government do apply also to the question of uh, independence for uh, or autonomy for places like Kashmir, uh, for um, uh, regions uh, uh, that are occupied by India that are contested by China or their own people that are living in the Northeast and so forth. Um, and therefore, any kind of arms deal would only uh, contribute to greater levels of uh, destabilization and um, in a region that is highly combustible on all sides, China, Pakistan, India, and so forth. One other thing that I think really needs to be brought out in in this kind of a discussion and gen, in in general, and many you and I have discussed it many times, including when we were um, well when you were editing the book to which I was a contributor, the uh, Palgrave Encyclopedia of Imperialism and Anti-Imperialism. That one of these predominant themes that we see, uh, especially on the left, especially in the you know in the West, is this notion of. Uh, competing imperialisms, that there's U.S. imperialism, that there's Russian imperialism, there's Chinese imperialism, and it's often pointed to, you know, Chinese investment in Africa as an example of quote-unquote Chinese imperialism. And I don't I don't actually subscribe to that uh, at all. I, I don't see it that way. Uh, in fact, I see it quite the opposite. I see uh, basically there being one imperialism, a global imperial system, a system of Western finance capital, or rather dominated by Western finance capital, to which you have independent nations like China and Russia who basically compete to get uh, an increasingly larger piece of that pie. But but that they are not exactly imperial power, certainly not the way that uh, Lenin defined imperialism in the famous book, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism. They don't uh, control the levers of finance. Really, finance capital is centered, global finance capital is centered on Wall Street and in the city of London and to lesser degrees in certain other places in the world, in, you know, in Paris and in Frankfurt and uh, elsewhere, that you have this question and I think it is a an ideological conflict on the left. Is there one global imperialism with the with the United States and its allies, NATO, etc., in the driver's seat, or do we have all of these uh, smaller competing imperialisms? And uh, I want to get your take on that and why you think that debate and that discussion, that dialogue, is really critical on the left. I think it's especially important uh, uh, today. I mean, I was thinking about uh, the Russian Federation today and um, also thinking of uh, Lenin uh, and his uh, you know, most you know, seminal work, uh, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, and the way that uh, the United States, in this case, and the West, NATO, and the European Union have been able to you know, apply sanctions and uh, kind of... Uh, destroy the uh, Russian or try to destroy the Russian economy uh, that's based on oil and other kinds of commodities, uh, but also on labor in that region, 
uh, that, that in some ways things haven't changed all that much uh, and that, um, uh, you know, it would be great if we had somebody like Lenin around today and also a movement uh, in, in Russia that would be able to um, identify um, Western capitalist imperialism uh, dominated by the United States as the major threat um, rather than, uh, uh, you know, kind of internal forces and so, uh, and so on. Obviously, internal forces in many cases may uh, agree in one way or another, but it, we have to confess, I mean, I think there's no question about it, that the United States uh, really created Yeltsin, uh, who, uh, and that uh, Putin, uh, came, you know, came in and was uh, instrumental in uh, pushing back some of the most uh, egregious forms of Western domination um, uh, and the growth of NATO as a, a, a an economic power. Uh, forgive me, as a uh, military power. What I was what I wanted to say is that uh, the the military power power allows economic power to uh, enhance itself. So therefore, um, the United States expansion into uh, Eastern Europe, and this is highly relevant. Uh, to a discussion of uh, a global working class and southern insurgency, that Eastern Europe in some ways does resemble uh, the global south. Uh, so therefore, the production of automobiles by Volkswagen and uh, French, foreign, uh, French companies like Peugeot and, and so forth, and Renault in Romania uh, and other parts of Eastern Europe and production of autos uh, in, in Poland, etc., is an extent, you know, is a reflection of, you know, NATO being there to protect their interests. And so I, I think that this is a question, obviously, that we can't discuss within the contours of this uh, uh, book. Well, and uh, also, and also, Manny, the European Union, which really acts as a, as sort of the political manifestation of European finance capital, which is, of course, directly connected to and part of the imperial system broadly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, for instance, Eastern Europe, um, including parts of the former Soviet Union, are, are really kind of uh, the, the new industrial areas of, uh, of Europe. Uh, and so they're, they are replacing French workers and so forth, uh, but in ways that are highly exploitative. And, and uh, you know, a lot of the problems that uh, the industrial working class uh, is facing in Western Europe is related directly to the EU policies, European Central Bank policies, as well as corporate policies, to uh, e erode wage rates and so forth, and to shift production eastward with the backing of NATO, with the backing of the strong uh, European Union, and, and the ability to uh, punish them if they go off course in any way whatsoever. So these would be safe investments. Yeah, that's right. And and it's an interesting point, I guess, as we come to a close in this conversation. The connection that you're making here with Eastern Europe is, is in many ways sort of a, a um, an extension of the global working class, uh, the global south working class. Um, if you Turkey if you too. I'm sorry, Turkey as well. Yeah, ex exactly. Absolutely. And the the issue for for me, at least that I find particularly interesting here is if you look at the polls, you look at the research and you look at the economic actual statistics, you see a precipitous decline in standards of living in Eastern Europe, where the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, the Soviet Union disintegrated, and these countries increasingly, quote-unquote, integrated into the, quote-unquote, liberal democracies of the West. In fact, you've seen the opposite of what was promised. Rather than prosperity for, for the many and increased rights and so forth, you see increased uh, repression. You see the rise of fascism. You see collapsing standards of living, uh, people working longer hours for more days a year for less pay and so forth and I think that all of those factors I need to be uh, I guess I could say integrated into our understanding of the development of a global working class but also the development of imperialism and, the, and obviously the link between those two uh, yes, uh, absolutely. The United States wanted to go into Belarus. They wanted to go into Ukraine. They tried to disrupt the elections in both. Well, in one case, they, they did, and they created a coup. Uh, but with respect to Belarus, they, they disrupted what was the first act by, I believe, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State. She tried to uh, intervene in the elections through uh, so-called soft power media, etc. 
but the point would be is that you know you go to places like Poland, uh, Slovakia, uh, the uh, the Balkans, and uh, as well as even places like Hungary, uh, the, the working class is doing very badly. They, they they've lost their pensions. They're living on uh, much lower uh, rates of uh, income. Uh, they're working many longer hours. Families are destroyed. Communities are destroyed. And it, it does have a tendency to increase the level of uh, uh, nativism in these countries, which we've seen uh, more recently with respect to uh, the uh, uh, crisis that's taken place in Syria uh, and the uh, migration to uh, to Europe as a whole. But I think that uh, this is a very dangerous uh issue with respect to understanding the growth of uh, uh, U.S.-dominated NATO into these regions uh, with the promise that they're going to be doing better. Well, they're not doing better, and one reason that perhaps for some of this backlash against uh, foreigners is that there has been, in fact, a decline in living standards, even though perhaps GDP has grown, uh, but G uh, GDP per capita but the distribution of it has been completely warped because what's replaced uh, the the systems that existed before socialism uh, have been really oligarchies and uh, the equivalent of really highly uh, unequal uh, ownership of the wealth. So, for instance, you have tycoons uh, in places like Poland and, and Hungary that run the systems as opposed to... Uh, 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 you know, higher levels of equality. They they take that, that surplus and and use it for themselves. I mean, that's also happened in Russia. Yeah, that's right. And um, this brings us back to this 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 point about you know quote unquote competing imperialisms. Uh, and if you look at you know if you look at China and you look at Russia and you look at uh, you know, Brazil and these kind, of, I mean, they're not the drivers of the kinds of changes that you you were just describing. It is the United States and NATO and the European Union, Western finance capital that is driving all of this. And that's why I kind of return back to this this point about one global imperial system with many interlocking parts and many interlocking and interrelated institutions. That, to me, is how contemporary imperialism needs to be understood, not in the way that it was understood, even by Lenin, in a sense, a hundred plus years ago, where you did have real empires competing, competing imperialisms. That distinction over the last hundred years, which has obviously become ever more Stark over the last couple of decades, that I think is a fundamental understanding that is oftentimes missing from left discourse. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, correct. Uh, that I, I think that many people would, uh, you know, analysts, uh, you know, Michael Hart and Negri would argue, and there's just some amorphous uh, force that's at work that we can't really locate. But I think we can locate. Uh, where imperialism is coming from and who the beneficiaries are. And uh, I agree with you that it's uh, Western capitalists, especially the United States and, and Western Europe, but I would also add that there are ruling classes in each of these countries that uh, make it happen. So yes, instance, exactly. I think in India, uh, their interests are actually with respect. Uh, uh, I mean, India and in many of the other countries of Africa, I don't want to single any country out, but Brazil, their interests, the Brazilian ruling class interests, is global. They don't care about Brazilians. They care about their uh, their uh, investments uh, in corporations that uh, uh, are directed by Western interests in one way or another that conform to the system where products are made or mined uh, and sold uh, to the West primarily. I mean, we are the consumers of the world. You know, the United States consumes, what is it, 25% of all uh, uh, energy, uh, yes. whereas you know four or five percent of the population. I mean, that's you know when we talk about global climate change, we should think about that uh, very hard and deep uh, when we try to impose rules on other countries, which may be actually necessary, but at the same time, it doesn't allow these other countries to develop in their own way, which I think is what they should do. They should develop in their own way, not necessarily capitalistic.
That's right. I totally agree. Um, we could go for many hours, but we're going to have to leave it there. Um, again, uh, the book is a very, very important book. Get it. Uh, put it on your bookshelf. Read it. Understand the implications of what's being argued. I think it's it's, I could say this uh, not simply because Manny's a friend of mine, but because I, I really do believe uh, that this book is one of the most important books you'll get your hands on this year. I really believe that. It's Southern Insurgency, The Coming of the Global Working Class by Emmanuel Ness. Uh, again, Manny is the uh, professor of political science at CUNY. That's the City University of New York. You Definitely should get this book. Uh, also, the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Imperialism and Anti-Imperialism, a two-volume, massive uh, compendium of many articles written by many scholars. And, That's for Ask Your Library. Don't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't buy that <laughs> unless you want to mortgage your house or whatever to, to, to buy it. But definitely... I think I was talking get- about... Uh publishing imperialism yeah really exactly talk, talk about talk about a book to which i contributed but can't afford to buy um so i'll, but... I, I'll try to get you a copy <laughs> well that's what I, I recommend southern insurgency thank you very much i i definitely think it's affordable. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. This is from, again, this is from Pluto Press. Uh, Definitely get your hands on that. Uh, Manny, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Yes, and we'll put together an affordable imperialism compendium. <laughs> it's an inf- affordable imperialism. Your your buyer's guide to affordable imperialism oh, texts. Imperialism and anti-imperialism. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, <laughs> listeners, thanks as always. Talk to you again next week. 